welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make, with your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash why make podcast or the Patreon link on our website. On episode 41 of Why Make, we talk with Christopher Schwarz, a furniture maker, educator, writer, and publisher who works from a storefront in Covington, Kentucky. Schwarz is one of the founders and the editor of Lost Art Press, which publishes books, including the Anarchist Tool Chest, on hand tool woodworking. In 2019, Schwarz triumphantly closed his commission book and now builds pieces on spec only and sells them via his prolific woodworking blog at Lost Art Press. We talk with Chris about selling bark jewelry and counterfeiting $100 bills as a child, his years as a writer and editor of popular woodworking magazine, his love of vernacular furniture, and how woodworking acts as a connective fiber in our society. So sharpen up both your noggin and your hand tools and enjoy this mind-expanding conversation with Christopher Schwarz. Okay, so we'd like to welcome Chris Schwarz to Why Make. Yeah, welcome, Chris. And because we seem to be experiencing a boatload of technical issues, and, and we're woodworkers, we know nothing about electrons. Uh, we're we're going to start out with the the why make um, question, which is, what is your first memory of making something? Uh, it's hard um, to pin down which one is first, but, uh, but the, either counterfeiting hundred dollar bills. Uh, with my uh, uh, a friend of mine, or, or um, making bark jewelry and selling it to the neighborhood kids. So uh, one of those two things was an early memory when I was about ten years old. I don't know which came first. What kind of jewelry? I missed that. Uh, well, my uh, s- some neighbors got some uh, new mulch that was this fancy bark. Bark jewelry. Oh, bark, bark. jewelry. Yeah. So it's this bark, and we uh, put it up on strings. And then we sold it to the little kids in the neighborhood trying to make some money. Right. On, on the assumption that, a, a, as P.T. Barnum said, a sucker is born every day. Yeah. Well, you know, we were always, me and my friends, always trying to make a buck when we were little. There was nothing else to do in Arkansas. So My brother and I started a window washing business when we were little. And we, we went to all the neighbors and said, we'll, we'll wash your windows for a dollar. And we made some money. Right. So literally, you actually, you, you did start out by making a buck, literally a hundred bucks. Well, we tried. Yeah. So like we found this picture in the world book encyclopedia of a hundred dollar bill and we thought that's not hard to draw. So you were a world book family, not a Britannica family. Well, uh, correct. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was part of a world book family too. Britannica was just pinkies up boys for the Britannica. (laughs) Right. But we, uh, yeah, so we, we were trying to make $100 bills by drawing them by hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, my friend's dad caught us, and we thought we were going to be in trouble, but he just laughed. So, uh, so that didn't go well, um, uh, the counterfeiting business. So that I guess we probably got into bark jewelry after that. And then we made comic books, but we didn't have a photocopier, so we were making them one at a time. You know, we were just always doing stuff like that. 
Well, that seems that seems like the perfect entree into the both the publishing and the woodworking world because. <laughs> I mean, as unimaginative as I was, I probably would have just uh, taken a dollar bill and put a couple of hundreds on it and then photocopied it. <laughs> you might have gotten farther than us with that <laughs> approach because that's intelligent. And then um, from that, uh, from your very early uh, disasters in publishing and bark jewelry, uh, I-, I love bark jewelry. I mean, I never thought that mulch could be so profitable. It's just the funniest thing to say, bark jewelry. Yes, I, I, that's why I asked you to repeat it because I, I, I didn't know there was actually whether there was a like a, a dog connection or whether we were actually talking oh. bark. Yeah, well, look on Etsy. I'm sure you'll find some there. But uh, no, we were we just thought that we had never seen mulch like that, and so we thought it was you know gold. Uh, right. But obviously, uh, after that, I mean, I my uh, my my father was uh, uh, a woodworker, he was, I mean, not for a living, but uh, was a carpenter. And they were, uh, my parents were homesteaders in Arkansas. And so we were building our own houses out in our farm, uh, out in Hackett, Arkansas, in the sticks. So we had a shop at home. Uh, my grandfather uh, was a woodworker uh, as well. So he and I built my first workbench when I was about 11 years old, I think. Um, and that was where I did all sorts of things from counterfeiting to building plastic models, to learning to stitch books, to, you know, making furniture, you know, ersatz crappy 12 year old furniture. And so, yeah, I always had a place in, in our house to work and mm-hmm. to, to do stupid stuff. And, uh, so, so that was kind of how I, I guess I got started. I mean, stupid stuff is great. That leads to all the, you know, the other stupid stuff you do for the rest of your life. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, I tried to provide my daughters with a place to do stupid stuff too. And, uh, I think it, I think it's important. Like you can light fires here. It's okay. And, um, I, uh, that, that kind of stuff is invaluable. Here's a fire extinguisher to put it out if it gets that far, but go for it, do whatever you want. Yeah. Right. But the whole, the whole running with scissors, uh, uh, tack towards raising your children. Yeah, sprint with scissors. That's our family motto. So, so did you? But did you continue on building through after after twelve, or did you? Is or did you start on the journalism path as you headed towards high school and college? Yeah, as I uh, you know went through puberty and got interested in in girls and all that uh, and music and finding that music was a better way to get girls than Mm, building model airplanes or (laughs) here, come, come smell the glue and look at my model collection. Yeah. Let's huff some testers. Um, (laughs) Chicks dig it. No, I kind of gave it up and uh, went to college for journalism. Uh, I was kind of torn between architecture school and uh, journalism school because my my hero I had architectural heroes as a child but one of my big one was a guy named Faye Jones he was a student of Frank Lloyd Wright's and he ran the architecture school at the University of Arkansas and so I really wanted to go there and I could get a scholarship and and all that but uh, a really good friend of mine uh, Charles was a bassist in our band he was a year ahead of me and went to the architecture school and after six months dropped out, he said, look, you basically have to take methamphetamines to, to stay awake all the time to do it. And so I decided to go to journalism school where you can smoke weed, I guess, instead of meth. Um, and pots of coffee, you know, it's coffee and weed. Coffee and weed. Yeah, it's the, yeah, the two food groups for journalism. Uh, so I went to journalism school in Chicago. And uh, mm-hmm. as soon as I got out, 
I was taking, I was building stuff for our house and taking woodworking classes at the University of Kentucky. And so I didn't get very far away from it. Once I got out of school, I went right back into it. Well, actually, so we're interestingly enough working on a uh, a Why Make First, a documentary on a pretty well-known woodworker who now lives in Asheville, North Carolina, named Tommy Simpson. Mm-hmm. Tommy is is actually an incredibly prolific maker, but he's also an incredibly prolific writer. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of, I'm really interested to go down the path with you, the connections between making and words, because as you can see, I can barely speak. I don't write any better. He, he has his own written language called Erikish that I edit. Yes. Well, actually, Rob doesn't so much edit Erikish as he translates it. <laughs> I, I, I have mastered probably every journalism professor's favorite thing, the run-on <laughs> sentence. I, mm-hmm. I believe in the liberal use of the comma, and I've actually banished the period from the, my written lingo. And I don't use any other punctuation. In fact, uh, I think the comma is the only punctuation you need. Um, <laughs> that will not go well with any, any English professor. No, I mean, writing has always scared the living shit out of me because I really enjoy reading and I can't write to save my life. So I'm really interested in the connection between words and making. Mm. What are your thoughts on that? Cause I think there's a connection because words are architecture, just like, making is a, is a, is architecture. And I think there's a real connection, but for some of us that are only visual thinkers, it's a difficult connection to make. Yeah, I, I, I do feel obviously a strong connection. It's, I, I see a lot of parallels because it's, it's what I do for a living and writing like woodworking is, um, uh, it's a, it's a series of very small exercises and uh, bits of knowledge that you put together. Uh, I, I, journalism school is a trade school. It's not a learn to think school. It's a learn to build uh, sentences, paragraphs, and, uh, and stuff like that into a story. And so very early on, you know, through those whole four years, it was all about these are the basic rules. This is how to how to build these things, how to build information and to create something bigger. And you can keep working and that article can become a magazine article, can become a book um, and all that. And when I you know, got back into woodworking very seriously, it's the same thing. You know, here is how to sharpen. Here is how to, um, you know, here's how to hold a saw. Here is how to hold a chisel. Uh, all these basic, very basic tasks that if you can teach somebody these, each one of these things, you, they add up. And then eventually, uh, you, you speak of it, you speak of like you're having your own language. I, I think eventually you're able to, both in woodworking and writing, you reach a point where things become, it becomes less of a conscious process where you can generate new, uh, new story ideas, new book ideas, uh, storylines, just like you can, because I have seen 6 billion stick chairs, I can envision 50 more in a day uh, just because I've seen so much and it's all an automatic process. But I, I, you just can't, you just don't come out of that whole, out of the womb like that. It's all, it's all just basic skills that you learn. And there are a couple books that we, we recommend uh, uh, William Zinser's uh, book on writing 
is the book that we give all our authors when we start them at uh, Lost Art Press. You can get it for a couple bucks at um, uh, Books a Million or Half Price Books. It's called On Writing Well. And it's a short book, which is the right kind of book, which is a short one. <laughs> and uh, it should be if it's on writing. And if you, if you read that, you only have to read the first half because the second half is, has to do with specialty applications for writing like sports writing or whatever. And you can take that to heart. I, almost all of our authors have become really good writers, uh, just like I think all woodworkers can become really good photographers uh, because the way that we think about line and value and shape, uh, all those things translate to photography, too. Um, and just like patterns relate to words. Uh, and so things like symmetry and asymmetry and uh, punk punctuation all those are uh, both in the writing world and in the visual world of making furniture. Did you just say punk punctuation? Yeah, that's where you get a piercing every time you use a semicolon. Um, I, I do. I do think there's a lot. I, I see a lot of similarities in in that every day. Obviously, I see a lot of similarities as well. It, it's just that. I view making, for the most part, as, as problem solving, and I think writing is problem solving as well. As like you said, it, it can form a, it can, you can look at it from a very utilitarian perspective. My problem is just, I'm not that familiar with the tools. Right. Um, and maybe I need to uh, read this book and uh, it, it will miraculously happen. It will. Yeah, Eric, it, 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 it'll, it'll, it take, it takes a lot of work. I went to, I got a bachelor's in journalism at, at WVU and you know, it's, it's a process. It's a big learning process. Like you're saying, Chris. So what kind of encouraged you? Okay. I know you said that you didn't go to architecture school. Then you ended up in J school. Then where did, where did the light go off that you were going to start write about writing about woodworking or did it just kind of, how did that coalesce? It was dumb fricking luck. Um, my wife and I were living in Lexington. I was, uh, Kentucky. I was building furniture, uh, thinking about trying to be a furniture maker, uh, which was foolish at the time, still foolish, always foolish. <laughs> um, and, uh, I was, I was a writer, professional journalist at the time. And so was, she, and so was she, and we had our first child and we realized all of a sudden that we're both journalists and you can't do that <laughs> if you're, because there are times where <laughs> There's a trailer fire in Nicholasville and my wife has to be in Frankfurt and there's nobody to take care of the baby. So we decided to move back to where my wife is from, which is up here in northern Kentucky, Covington, right outside Cincinnati. And so we decided one night at the movies that we were going to do this and uh, came home. And the ne next day I went, picked up the newspaper to look for jobs in Cincinnati it was a miracle. There was a job for managing editor at Popular Woodworking Magazine in uh, Cincinnati, and I, I could not apply fast enough. <laughs> um, and I uh, got the job, took a huge pay cut to do it, but I didn't care because I knew right then, like, this, this is my life's work, of course. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, get paid to do both. Although it is, it is interesting that uh, I would say these days that probably woodworking is the far more lucrative um, job than journalism. As I can say, we, I, uh, we have a journalist in our family, my brother-in-law's well-known editorial writer for the Chicago Tribune for many years. And of course, the Chicago Tribune, as we know, it no longer exists. They basically laid off all of the 
all of the older staff members and professional journalism, I'm not sure exists anymore either. As he's, my brother-in-law has lectured many times in various forums, you know, journalism has largely been taken over by the, by the blogs and the social media and people decidedly not professionals. Well, and a lot of professional journalists are now on like Substack and other different places like that to be able to, to sell their writing to people that'll buy it. Yeah, my wife is a journalist, uh, still frontline professional journalist, and there is there is some that goes on. Um, it's I think the level of journalists has been basically cut in half since the 80s uh, in, in number, and it's the lowest number it's ever been recorded. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's like being a wheelwright uh, in Buck Rogers movie, but uh, but it's it's still necessary. Add it to the red list, you know. Yeah, it's still it's still a necessary thing for democracy, and so. Mm-hmm. Some people are still trying to hold on, but. So you're writing away at popular woodworking and, and uh, that was your dream job, but obviously that's not what you do now. So how did that metamorphosize into, I guess you ended up working for other magazines or. No, I mean, I was at Popwood for 15 years. Oh, wow. Okay. Quite a long time. Yeah. I started in 96 and left in 2011. Um, and then was a contributing editor up until about three or four years ago. So I have a long history with that one title. I'm a loyal guy. You even have, you even call it Popwood. I mean, that. Oh yeah. We call it Popwood. That's endearing right there. <laughs> yeah. Well, Pop Mechanics, Pop Psy. It was a scrappy kind of underdog magazine. Yeah. And, so you rose on through the ranks. Yeah. Until, uh, to be editor uh, when I left, I was, had mm-hmm. been, I was editor for, uh, editor in chief for the last few years, five wow. years, I guess. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't really remember, but um, I had uh, the, the magazine had been taken over by venture capitalists. The whole publishing arm, F and W Media that we were under, had been taken over by venture capitalist firms, which wasn't so bad at first. But if you know anything about venture capital, they uh, flipped it a few times and just drained yeah. all the resources out of it, and it became very difficult. Uh, to do your job uh, correctly, and then it was it was uh, a lot of people quit, um, but I, I stayed on. And uh, at at some point while I was there, about two thousand seven, I had written a book, my first book on workbenches, and it had been published through Popular Woodworking. And they said you've got to start a website to to promote your book because we don't have any money to to budget it <laughs> to to promote it. It's on you, buddy. <laughs> Yeah, and it was. I was like, oh, thanks. And so I started a little company called Lost Art Press with a with a good friend of mine, John Hoffman. And uh, we were selling my workbench book and we were selling a few other books. And we decided, hey, why don't we sell some of the stupid stuff that we want to do, like uh, that, that nobody would touch, some historical reprints and things like that. And mm-hmm. so we did. And after about four years, it became big enough to support me and my family and and Hoffman and his family. And so we said, let's just do this. And so it became a full-time job in uh, 2011 and uh, has been for the last 10 years. I've been pretty much building furniture uh, on commission and now on spec and, uh, and doing Lost Art Press. Yeah, I noticed you said you, you you closed your commission book recently. Yes, I'm now on spec. I mean, that's a that's a, a great thing to be able to to be able to do, you know. It might be the second or third best day of my life. Um, 
I mean, I love working with customers. That wasn't the issue, but I'm sure you guys know is like, even if you have a really good base of customers, you kind of can get into a rut of building the same sort of thing over and over again. And uh, for me, it was, cam- I had, because I wrote a book on campaign furniture, mm-hmm. I got just so much. Uh, it was the most profitable stuff I did, but it was also just a lot. <laughs> and I won't say I'm tired of campaign fur- furniture, but there are so many other things that go with. <laughs> that path is well-worn. <laughs> Uh, it's also, you work with a lot of exotics and I'm not really, I, I'm much more of a domestic hardwood sustainability guy. Same, same here. <laughs> and so there are a lot, there are also a lot of other issues. And I was like, look, I, I think I'm going to take a chance. And a few years ago, I, I stopped taking commissions and now I just build it and sell it. And so far it's been going really well and I'm much happier. Right. I, actually, uh, I just wanted to talk about commissions just briefly because I mean, in terms of artistic development, in terms of moving forward as a maker, the interesting thing about commissions is it's a relationship with a client. It's a relationship with a person. And those are somewhat fascinating, but the client's driving the project and it's their needs and their wants. And I think ultimately we all want to get to a place where we're just doing spec work. We're just doing, we're building those things that make us happy. Um, and that's sort of, I mean, I think you've alluded this to this many times, Chris, in terms of all your writings, in terms of there's this economic imperative, but there's also this life imperative, which says we need to seek those things that bring us joy. And, you know, the, the, the capitalist system can really, you know, make you make widgets and making widgets isn't a bad thing, but it's hard to grow making widgets. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, everything about our life is designed to so that people can't put us out of business as either as a furniture maker or as a writer. Even if we stopped, even if nobody bought a book for a year, we would still be mm-hmm. in business because the building I'm in is my shop and it's my home. We bought it with cash. We've stayed out of debt our entire lives. We live in one of the most affordable cities <laughs> ever. And I have access to... Um, because thanks to the internet and the inter, you know the interstate system, I can truck my furniture wherever it needs to go. So it's that's the whole thing. That's how I've taken control of my life. I couldn't do this in New York or San Francisco. It would be too expensive. You know, there's so I have a lot of things working uh, in in my corner. Yeah, if you tried to have a storefront in New York City versus Covington, Kentucky, yeah, what you, the rent would be 10, 15 times the amount of money. <laughs> Yeah, this is uh, this building was one hundred and sixty five thousand dollars. Oh man, my house didn't even that much. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's it's we live here and we work here, and yeah, sure, we had to do a lot of work to it, but yeah, you know, it's kind of like. You can do this. You know, that's why that's why I encourage people who ask business questions is you've got to live low to the ground. You've got to get rid of debt, you've got to be cheap and uh, and then be satisfied with enough. You know, if you're going to if you want to get rich, like become a hedge fund manager. Right. Right. Yeah. And change your name every day. You know, Matt, Mike, Jake. <laughs> Where are those kind of clothes? I mean, I shop at Goodwill almost exclusively or whatever thrift stores I run into. It's like, you know, it makes a difference. It, you know, I don't want to spend 60 bucks on a shirt. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, I mean, I think there's a whole thing of developing an appropriate lifestyle. I mean, I think that's where, 
that's where I've been in terms of trying to, you know, pretty much on the same model and, and hardly successful at all. But, you know, I think if you had, if your shop is in your backyard, like mine is, and, you know, you keep your debts low and you pay everything in cash, then chances are you are not going to become wealthy. Um, you might not even become middle class, but you're going to be, you're going to enjoy your life. So I think the, I, I've always valued quality of life issues more than, uh, than actual dollars. In fact, I really don't understand wealth. I mean, to me, there's a, there's a limit to wealth. So you own five houses, five cars, seven boats, and have a billion dollars. What next? <laughs> it, it seems like wealth becomes all about consumption. You've got, I can't even name the amount of titles on Lost Art Press. What was one of the first titles? And I, I'm, I can say it, but I'm going to, you know, let you talk about it. But talk about, um, you know, getting some of those first titles off the ground and the, you know, the motivation and the meaning behind what you were starting to do with Lost Art Press. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't want to make it a vanity press, you know, that was about my writing only if I did, my life would be so much easier, uh, actually working with authors and, uh, other designers and illustrators, it, it, you know, it complicates things, but I didn't want, you know, I, I, I do feel a responsibility to, to help others. And, uh, and also I want good books for me to read too. I mean, one of the reasons we started the, the, the company was because Christian Bexford said, I'll never write another woodworking book because there's no money in it. And so we said, geez, how do we do this so we, there, can, there can be money in it for other authors? And we came up with a scheme where we split uh, profits, all the profits, 50-50 with the authors. I mean, that's the most amazing, reasonable scheme for any author in this entire world. <laughs> it is. It was, it was uh, the first time I ever heard it was from Mark Twain. He, he proposed it. And it makes so much sense. I've been an author, so that means... I've been screwed and I have been on the other side of the equation. And so I've had to do the screwing. Um, and so when we started the company, we we're like, let's, let's just make it fair. You know, what we bring to the table is we'll design your book. We'll sell the book. We'll put it in the boxes. We'll make sure people buy it and you make the best woodworking book you can. And then we will, after we uh, pay all the agreed upon expenses that we've said we're going to you know, share, then we're going to split it 50-50. And the other thing we do is we keep our books in print for as long as humanly possible. So uh, that's the other thing with the corporate publishing world. There's about an 18-month life cycle for a book. And so you might, you know, a woodworking author might make 10 grand, you know, so you, from a book total. So you spend two, three years of your life and you see 10 grand, that's ridiculous. And that's why we did it. And so we have all of our, almost all of our titles uh, that, that we have originated are still in print from the day we started the company. And so all those authors still get a quarterly check from us and they will as long as they want us to uh, keep their book in, uh, in print. That seems ultimately very fair. Well, quite a quite a novel business notion that everybody profits. It's win win all the way around. Yeah, when you when you're in corporate publishing, you see a lot of people who don't do a very good job because they know they're gonna they know they're not gonna get a lot of money. And so, how do you get someone invested in a book so that they will do something ridiculous like translate 
18th century Roubaix and spent, you know, a project we spent almost a decade and a quarter million dollars on. Well, we knew that, you know, we'd probably do okay with it. And so everybody was really motivated to, to do something. And, and also we try to make nice books, you know, physical objects, because we are all people who like nice things. We make nice things with our hands. Um, and so we try to do the right thing that way, you know, and we try to use, uh, you know, only domestic suppliers and all that sort of stuff. Um, you can, you can take, you know, take it as far as you can. Well, actually, I'm curious on that account. Have you guys ventured into eBooks? Do you have a Do you have a political uh, view on eBooks? We, we do offer PDFs, uh, which are free of digital rights management (DRM), um, and that's because of right. um, you know requests from both our authors and our readers. <laughs> they want them. A lot of times, they want them because they travel and they want to put them on their Kindle or their laptop or whatnot, or they want to be able to search them. Um, I'm not a fan except for research. I use them for research, but I, I can't read. Uh, I don't read very well on a, on a screen. Oh, I hate reading screens. <laughs> it bothers my eyes. We don't charge full price for the PDF. Uh, we, I, mean, we th- I think that's kind of ridiculous. So we charge, if we charge half of the retail for a PDF, uh, which we think is fair because, uh, mm-hmm. you don't have to print it, um, or anything like that. Uh, but we don't have any, like I said, DRM. So once you have it, you have it and you yeah. can take it. It's portable. Uh, you know, you're not going to have the rights taken away from you if we go out of business or you change devices. It's just an interesting thing to think about in terms of, you know, you you obviously put a lot of effort into an, an exquisitely made object. But in the end, it's really about the words. And I don't love reading things on the screen, but it is a way to make words more accessible. So as, as a functional aspect, I'm, I'm, I'm pro ebooks. I'm just don't physically like them. I agree partially with that, Eric. It's about the words, but man, so much of what you're doing, Chris, and especially the, the type of books you're doing, it's a, it's a lot about the packaging and the presentation too. Cause you, you make some pretty beautiful books. Thanks. I, the first one I saw, one of my buddies has actually my my friend Ryan has quite a woodworking book collection, but I, he showed me the Anarchist Tool Chest in like maybe 2014, and piqued my interest in it, and and that to me seems like kind of the preeminent book and series that you've put out with Lost Art Press, and uh, probably. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but what you seem to be most well known for is the Anarchist series. Could you talk a little bit about the development of that and where you see that in the the, the pantheon of Lost Art Press? Sure. Uh, I started writing um, the Anarchist Tool Chest because I, I wanted to write a book for myself when I was 11 years old. And you know, like what would what book would I have wanted? when I was 11 years old and I would always you know, ride my bike to the hardware store uh, every weekend and look at all the tools and was just you know really obsessed with, with tools like a lot of kids are, but I didn't know what was good and I didn't know what was crap. And so I, bu- I bought a lot of crap uh, when I was a kid. And so uh, it, it, it started off just like that and sort of blossomed into uh you know, what, what it became, which is more like a statement about um, how many tools do we really need and uh, how, how much, you know, how much crap do we need in general? And, and the, the tool chest was an idea 
that um, if you can fit it in the tool chest, then then that's good. But if you if you can't fit it in there, you probably don't need it. Uh, and it was just supposed to be a literary conceit. I didn't really think anybody would build the tool chest. Uh, so it, it only occupies like about 20% or 15% of the book, but it turns out that a lot of people uh, really like building that tool chest. Uh, so it became a, a physical object as well as a, a, a mental one. And then all the other books were sort of uh, al- along you know the same lines, like what, if I were getting started, uh, what, what should I build? And the design book was that. And the workbench book was, you know, what sort of workbench would I ha- should I have built instead of the plywood and two by four thing that my grandfather and I built. And, uh, you know, we, we get a lot of grief for the politics uh, saying, you know, that it, and the word anarchist has really become a bad word in the last couple of years, especially. I mean, it's been a bad word off and on. But if you study American anarchism, there's not really anything to be afraid of uh, from anarchists. I mean, um not real anarchists, but people who use the name uh, in the name of violence. Uh, but I've stuck to my guns as far as keeping that title. We've had very you know, sympathetic readers who have asked us to please call it like the practical person's tool chest and <laughs> or, you know, I don't know, the, the, the kind badger's tool chest or something silly. Uh, or make it just take the teeth out of it. But I, I think the teeth belong. Yeah, I think Eric Eric wanted to call it the pragmatist tool chest or something like that. <laughs> well, actually, not so much that because I really have no problem with the word anarchy because I have the feeling similar to you. It sounds like you grew up in somewhat of a communal situation or alternative situation in Arkansas. I lived in a I lived in a hippie commune in West Virginia for many years. And to me, anarchy is just an, it's an organizing principle. It's a way of creating a way of self-organizing without a hierarchy. Right. Um, um, so it doesn't have the political negative connotations, but as a, as a word, I'm interested in your usage of it in describing what I think is a practical approach to owning things. I'm just curious about using that word, which I have no problems with. It's just that it doesn't seem the most appropriate word for what you're getting at. So I think there's a subtext. Well, I am an anarchist. And uh, I mean, I, I, I try not to use that word uh, a lot nowadays because people it's, it always involves a lot of un- trying to tell people what the heck that means. Are you a member of ISIS or something? <laughs> well, or worse, who knows? But um, and, and but it is, you know, it, it is what I really feel in my heart as a, uh, as an aesthetic anarchist. Uh, that is the right word for me. And, right. and, and, and so I'm not, I, I feel no need to, to, to back down from that. And also we have enough really boring woodworking books uh, out there. Uh, there. There were tons of them. And so I, I wasn't going to water it down, you know, I mean, it's, and, and, you know, a lot of, of course, people who might call themselves anarchists, actually, most people who disagree with me aren't, wouldn't call themselves anarchists. Uh, a lot of people who are not anarchists have strange ideas about what anarchism is. Um, I mean, I'm, what I said is an aesthetic anarchist, anarchist, and where most of my beliefs come from is, is from, you know, Josiah Warren, who is the, the, the father of American anarchism. And if you read that, it's it's pretty freaking clear uh, as to it, I think how my ideas uh, work, but you know you have a lot of 
you know, newer anarchists who have a lot of different ideas and, and that's anarchism and that's democracy and that's, you know, all the other things. I mean, there's just a lot of different threads of people and no two anarchists have ever agreed on anything. If a group of anarchists got together, they would spend the first, you know, hour trying to define what is, you know, anarchism or who has to sit next to, is the table going to be round or uh, square or whatever. So it's... Uh, well, and, and actually, it's the perfect metaphor, because if you think if you put 10 woodworkers in a, in a room and you ask them all to accomplish the same task, they would find 10 different routes to accomplish the same task. And I think it's very much the same concept. If, if the concept is to work together in harmony and create something that functions for the 10 people in that room, both the woodworkers and the anarchists would accomplish it. Um, I'm not so sure in today's present state of democracy, they'd accomplish anything. <laughs> Yeah, I, I yeah, I actually haven't had much problem with woodworkers, uh, you know, politically over the years. Um, I, I we uh, our stable at Lost Art Press of authors ranges the entire gamut, political gamut that you can imagine, and uh, both and also the spiritual gamut <laughs> from atheism to uh, evangelical. Uh, I, I really do get along with woodworkers, uh, and and. I, I'm not really, a, even though, you know, if you put a word out there like anarchist, what, what is, you're, you're, people are bound to think you're a very political individual, but I, I'm, I'm what pol, pol, uh, political drunkies would call a normie. I mean, I'm not, I don't talk about politics a lot at all. I mean, I'm much more interested in woodworking and, and politics is, is, is there, but really woodworking is, is the bigger, uh, more important aspect of my life. Right. Well, no, what actually I was trying to allude to is that not so much conflict with woodworkers is that woodworkers all have very unique ideas on how to problem solve. Mm -hmm. I think that's the beauty of the field. I mean, if you if you tell 10 people that the goal is to put two pieces of wood together, you're going to get 10 different solutions. And chances are every one of those solutions will be appropriate to what the goal was. Um, I think that's the beauty of, to me, anarchy, which is self-organizing communities and woodworking, which is individual thought working together, working together to accomplish a task. Um, so I, I guess I'm just uh, seconding that sort of practical view of, I don't know, I, call, I don't think of myself as political. I think of myself as just a, as, as a pragmatic person. And the idea is to be able to work together to accomplish something, whether that be a, a green planet or a place where everybody can thrive. Um, although, unfortunately, those are incredibly radical notions. It's really interesting. The, what you had just said before, Chris, is that, you know, woodworking has this weird power in a lot of crafts, clay and metal. It has the power of bringing people together despite their political viewpoints or religious viewpoints. I mean, that's that to me, that's, that's powerful no matter what you believe. Yes. And this is an important point that I try to make with people because uh, a lot of times people who are in woodworking or out of woodworking will come to me and say, Oh my gosh, you're, you're a woodworker. You must be some kind of leftist <laughs> hippie because you, you know, you, you know, you, you're, you're, because of my lifestyle, I guess. But, you know, you, oh, you must be this leftist hippie. And then there's other people who see woodworkers as this kind of, you know, this self-determination, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, make everything, you know, kind of, you know, right wing, uh, right winger. And I, I mean, I get it from both sides and uh, or, you know, a prepper or whatever. And 
we used to do social science surveying of our audience in woodworking and did it for many years. And it was done by a, a, company that would do uh, political polling too. So they would always add <laughs> some <right>. political <laughs> questions to our woodworking questions, which I thought was like, holy cow, what is what are we going to learn? And what we learned was absolutely boring and absolutely fascinating. And that is that woodworkers are an exact political reflection of our society. Uh, there are is absolutely does, does not trend left. It does not trend right. It's not center. It is the entire gamut. It is who we are. And Americans, that makes a lot of sense because this country, mm -hmm. its biggest resources would always has been. And there was a time when almost everybody in this country worked with wood or made things of wood and little bits of metal. And that was it. So, I mean, we are a wooden society. And uh, and I think that is comforting to me. It means that the, I there is a connection that I can have with with almost any person of any stripe. That really is true, Chris. I mean, ev everybody, unless you're talking about the this weird anomaly, everybody has furniture in their house, whether it's clapboard crap from Walmart or they have a family antique or it's something that they had built for them or they go out to more of the mid-range stores, rooms for less or wh whatever is out there. I'm not going to use the four-letter I word, but, um, you know, they – they um, everybody's got some kind of furniture. You know, it's a word everybody knows. Yeah. And they all have an opinion about it. Whether it's a, I don't give a shit or it's like, I've been searching for this bed for four years and I finally found the, the, the perfect headboard and oh my gosh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to spend the money on it and I'll have it for the rest of my life. And it's amazing. Yeah. Well, that's the beauty to me of uh, functional objects is that they transcend so much of our lives. I mean, we interact with them. It's so different than, you know, a picture on the wall or a sculpture in which, you know, we can enjoy its beauty, but we don't interact with it on a daily basis. And I think that's why a lot of us are drawn towards making functional objects. There's just a beauty in making something for somebody that they're going to be a part of. Yeah, it's cool to make something that people will imbue with meaning, you know, that, that that's the other thing that we all share is that we all have furniture mm -hmm. from our forebears and and it has meaning. You know, a lot of it is a lie. You know, it didn't come over from Ireland, but but we've imbued it with that. And so that's cool, too. It's fine with you know nothing wrong with that. But, you know, that's that is a little, you know, reach at immortality for a lot of us. Well, actually, that's the perfect thing, because for you as a woodworker, you have both the piece and the story. What's more important, mm -hmm. the actual building of the piece or the story behind the piece? Um, I'm always intrigued by that. I mean, I'm intrigued as we make pieces, what our intent is and the story we create about them afterwards. Uh, it's, it's almost as if it's two different processes and both equally interesting and unique. Yeah. And then the story that it will take on its own, you know, that has nothing to do with us. Right, exactly. After it leaves us, it gets its own, it gets its own story. And that's kind of cool when you, when you encounter those stories years later um, and they're not true, but it's still cool. And does it matter whether they're true or not? Not at all. I don't think so. I mean, I think family stories are at least 60% fiction, you know, at least in my family. And there's a lesson behind whatever, you know, that is being taught. 
as to, you know, whether it's with this piece, this chair represents frugality or poverty or wealth or a major marriage or uh, that it, it does get meaning that is, is important and, and stories that are important. Yeah, I really like the idea that functional furniture can take on just as much of a story as conceptual furniture. When you when you really look down to like oh yeah the historical component of the making of these pieces they all have stories. Totally agree, and it, it's something you know. Art furniture is you know it, it, the meaning is actually more limited in, in, in some ways, <laughs> whereas it's an open ended question. Uh, what what we make uh, or what I make is you know it, it can take on any meaning, uh, good, bad, ugly. Uh, but I'm not the one who really determines too much of that. Right. So speaking of which, what is it that you make? Uh, talk about the progression of the pieces of furniture, you know, the types of furniture you've made and, and, and what you're making now. Where did, what were the earliest pieces you made and, and what are you making now? Early on, you know, I was making stuff that has all gone to the curb. So we call that early curb, um, mid-curb and late curb. Uh, those were during the, the 90s. Um, I started collecting arts and crafts furniture about 92, and we were buying it off of people's porches down in the South. And I amassed quite a nice collection of it. But at some point, I, I realized I couldn't afford it on a, a writer's salary. And so that was one of the you know, kind of prompts for me to start making. And so I started making all the arts and crafts pieces uh, that I couldn't buy. And it was kind of the wackier stuff from the Birdcliff colony, you know, uh, Limbert, not not the stickly. I wasn't really into the stickly styles. I was into the more crazy stuff. Uh, but I was also very interested in campaign furniture because my grandparents collected it. And I was surrounded. Uh, they also went to Japan and China. Uh, my grandfather did for his job. And so they brought back a lot of Chinese and Japanese stuff. Just to interrupt you for a quick second, Chris, because I, I want you to uh, give a brief definition of campaign furniture, because I think most people aren't really aware of what campaign furniture is. Sure. Uh, so campaign furniture is one of the longest running styles uh, of furniture, which you might, most people don't know. Um, it, it represents a very utilitarian style of furniture that was used by uh, people who worked for uh, Great Britain as Great Britain took over the entire uh, world. And uh, so they would spread out uh, sort of their administration of 25% of our uh, the world's landmass at its height. Uh, and so they needed uh, a little bit of Britain to go with them. And so there was it was traveling furniture, very tough, um, uh, you know, very uh, well-made, uh, exotic. And if I'm not incorrect, it was often associated with wars. It often went with the British army. Yeah. Or is that is that an incorrect? It's a simplified. I mean, because there was so much of it, because there were there were a lot of people who were administrators, you know, clerks and doctors and everything who were spread out all over the empire, not just the, the British military. Um, it is closely associated with the military, but it was used by a huge slice of the population. And that's why there's so much of it out there. Um, and then what's interesting to me is that basically campaign furniture uh, became Danish modern. I mean, Danish modern took almost all its cues from uh, campaign furniture and Carl Clint uh, would use pieces of campaign furniture to, uh, uh, to teach 
how to make uh, Danish furniture. So there's it's it's a very influential, if if not well known, style. And then after I, uh, from, from there, you know, I made a, I made everything. I was told to make at the magazine. So that could be anything from 18th century to country furniture, whatever country furniture that is. And my obsession was always with chairs. So in the 90s, I discovered John Brown, who was a Welsh stick chair maker. And he wrote a, a small book called Welsh Stick Chairs. And from about, I was about 97, 98. And from that moment on, that was really the thrust of my personal work. And I had to find somebody who would teach me how to make them. And finally did that about 2003. So I've been making those since about 2003. And that's sort of the topic of my latest book called The Stick Chair Book. I guess that was the plug. But I do, I still do make a lot of uh, flat work and all that. But the, the, the chairs are easy to transport. Uh, it's not like sending uh, an enormous campaign secretary. Uh, so I'm, I'm very happy to send, uh, send, send chairs out. But that, that's kind of my obsession. And, and I, like, I also particularly like them because there's not that much known about them yet. And so it's, it's not like Windsor chairs that have been really played out, which are great. But you know, there's just not much new to explore there. In some ways, though, it seems like because I'm looking at some pictures of the of, on your website of the of the Welsh stick chairs, and they do seem to be somewhat the progenitor of the of the Windsor chair um, and and of the you know the Shaker Bobax and some of those other chairs. Is, is that historically correct? I would argue yes, and the Welsh definitely would. I mean, the first image we have of a chair that would say that's a Windsor form is a Welsh image from the 1400s. And uh, this is way before right. Windsor chairs uh, came about. And, you know, that Windsor chairs came about in the early um, late, you know, early 1700s, probably is the best way to put it. There might be a little earlier. Um, so, yeah, you can say that it is. a. I mean, I don't like to call it a primitive Windsor because uh, that kind of takes away some of its um, life. But it is uh, it's definitely a, a shorthand for describing what it what they are. Right. Yes. I mean, in the, in the sense that I think the wonderful thing about this field of woodworking is nobody's recreated the wheel. We're all working off of familiar forms and it's best to give credit where credit's due in terms of where the ideas originally came from. Oh yeah. And what, uh, what I particularly like about it is that, you know, you can, uh, if you're smart enough or you have a publishing company, you can, you know, bring these forms back, <laughs> uh, you know, that have been forgotten. And, you know, most of these chairs, a lot of them were cut up for firewood when everybody got their tubular steel uh, furniture. And, you know, we have a, a pretty good record of them, but it's like trying to show, look, this is something we forgot about. And now we can explore it again and, you know, work through it a lot. Uh, or work through it together and, and explore all the you know, many, many forms uh, of it. And I also love it because there really aren't defined uh, forms, meaning, you know, we don't have, you know, you, well, I build fanbacks, I build sackbacks. We don't have those sorts of names. I mean, it's the chairs are kooky. They were made by amateurs or farmers, not real professionals. You talk about some of those folks like on your blog, like uh, what Chester Cornett, for example, is... I mean, his stuff is far afield from some of the the stuff that you make. But even though he's an anomaly, it seems like he was an influence and other folks similar to that were influences on you or are still influences on you. 
Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can be influenced by a lot of other things and the, the, the animalism. Vernacular furniture is, is like, for me, the undiscovered country of uh, for, is what I hope to spend the rest of my life exploring because it, it has been really just not uh, not done. No, people haven't done with much with it academically. There aren't a lot of good books about it. Um, and so there's just a lot to explore there. And so it's it's just fascinating. Right. Talk about vernacular furniture and maybe Chester Cornett. He's an example of that, correct? He is. Uh, yes. No. So vernacular furniture is is furniture mm-hmm. of the people or furniture of the place. Um, so people who made their own stuff and you know, made it in place. It wasn't uh, bought from vernacular is not bought from a a store. Uh, generally, it's it's made by somebody for themselves or for somebody in their village. Almost all self-taught, but that is make that kind of diminishes it because some of these people are really handy. Uh, you know, they're very highly skilled, but they might not be their design sense might not be as attuned to somebody in Boston or New York. Uh, but they. Uh, you know, they might it might be called more agricultural, um, but these these forms are are different than what you see in the cities. It's not just that they're simplified. Uh, it's not just that they're crude because they're sometimes they're not. Um, but they were very utilitarian. I mean, they 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 are kind of like Bauhaus that has always been there. And um, these forms of furniture, what I love about them is that something like a six-board chest, which has been around forever, really hasn't changed in, you know, since I, I've seen six-board mm-hmm. chests from the 1100s that look just as contemporary as the ones I make. Um, yeah. Meaning not contemporary, but also very contemporary. I mean, it's it's not stuff that goes out of style like Rococo or uh, Arts and Crafts or Shaker or whatever. I mean, it's this, it's always there. It's this this current um, that, that flows through our society. And we just haven't really thought much about it. Actually, I, I have two interesting questions and they both go in different tracks, but the one, I absolutely love chairs because I think uh, being somebody who is, who's a lot of their work is driven by the human form. I find it, the chair is the ultimate piece of human sculpture because it's one, it's only function is really for a, somebody to sit in it comfortably and how you achieve that function seems to be part of its uniqueness as an object. And I imagine that in the Welsh stick art tradition, many different people approach, approach the comfortness in, in a different way. And, and, and my second thought is that, you know, in exposing vernacular furniture, is there a, fear that you're going to, I'm trying to figure the best way to express this. I have always loved outsider art and naive art. Mm -hmm. And then it got really popularized and destroyed. The whole notion of amateur makers making objects perfectly reflective of themselves became people all of a sudden, you know, painting license plates and selling them. And I think that's the real danger in exposing, you know, vernacular work is that people misunderstand it. I'm just curious your take on thinking about the chair and the 
and exposing vernacular art to the popular world? Yeah, I'll start with the vernacular uh, question. I also have been collecting outsider art for a long time, and I feel a lot of similarities uh, you know, between them. So I've always been a huge fan of like R.A. Miller and uh, Howard Finster, and we, we collected a lot of that in our early days. And yes, it's true that after it became very popular, then there is this rash of people who, you know, will, will do anything to make a buck, you know, it becomes commercialized. Um, but it still doesn't take away from, for me, the, the beauty of the real stuff, of the real, the real deal. And as, uh, as long as that stuff is out there, um, then I'm okay with that. And also, what I acknowledge with, uh, with, with, especially with folk art or outsider art or whatever you want to call it, is that the attention that's paid to it has brought a lot of really amazing makers to light who might not have ever uh, been found because, you know, because we didn't have an appreciation for that kind of weirdness uh, uh, in your, years past. So it's a, it's a double, I'll say it's a double-edged sword. And there are a lot of, you know, people making stick chairs out there that I think are, really weird uh, or uh, look awkward or whatnot. And so I, part of me can say, gosh, that's too bad. I, I just want everybody to make beautiful chairs or whatever I think are beautiful. But on the other hand, I think that's pretty selfish of me because what's important to me at the end of the day is no matter what, is that you, you, you got someone to pick up the tools and make something and uh, the, the beauty, beauty aside, you know, it'll probably survive based on it's how, how good it, it is in, in the long run. But um, but m- inspiring somebody to pick up the tools and do something, even if it's kind of not my taste, is that's that's the best thing. I mean, it's a it's a good attitude not to be critical like that, just to be appreciative of the fact that you're making making uh, it's I that's all I want is, you know, I mean, that's my goal isn't really. Sure, I, I mean, I love it if you make well stick chairs or or some of my designs. But if it mm-hmm. if it inspired you to pick up the tools to make you know I don't know something to hang me an effigy, that would also be cool. <laughs> I mean, you at least you make something. Um, I, yeah, I really don't have. Uh, I really try not to be critical of other people's work because you know we're all uh, we're all subject to criticism on comfort with Welsh chairs and and looking at that, what's been fascinating to me with a lot of vernacular chairs and wooden chairs in general, I think the important lesson for us to, to say is, is look, uh, it's a wooden chair, so it's going to have limits to how comfortable it can be. One, I mean, just period, because wood. But um, the, 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 the second thing is, is that you can always put a cushion on it. I mean, that's... That is like, uh, I mean, I make wooden chairs as comfortable as they can possibly be, but I also tell my customers, yeah. look, buy a sheepskin because these things were covered in sheepskins uh, mm-hmm. or they had cushions or blankets. And you look at the chairs a little differently when you can imagine it with a sheepskin on it. It takes on a different appearance. And once I started putting sheepskins on my chairs, I was kind of I was kind of entranced with them anew, actually, because they looked, they looked different. So. Um, ideas of comfort, you know, we, I, I know so many people who think that like, there's got to be a magic formula of numbers and angles and curves that will make the perfect wooden chair that will support you. And it will feel like you're floating on air. That's crap. All our bodies are a little bit different, you know? Yeah. We're different shapes and sizes and. 
Yes, we are. There's a lot of variability. And the other thing is, is that owning a wooden chair doesn't mean that the chair should be, sometimes we have to learn to sit in a chair. So sometimes you have to, I got the chair I sit in every morning. It's one of my prototypes. I'm not proud of it. Yeah. You know, but I sit in it for three hours every morning and I've learned to adjust where my spine and lumbar are on it. And I can sit there for three hours. Have you ever read the book, The Chair by Galen Krantz? Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. I've read Galen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's amazing. You know, we're we're not meant to sit. No, we're not. And sure, I mean, I we should all be making, we should all be squatting right now. But all of us are sitting in chairs. <laughs> and, uh, and that's because chairs, I think, are... Even if squatting is the better answer for us as a, as a anatomical beings, I'm not going to squat. <laughs> I love my chairs. I, I mean, the, they are this sculpture that I sit in and uh, they have meaning to me. Um, and I, I really enjoy sitting. Uh, I just, I think for me, I think the answer is not don't have chairs. I think, I think the answer is don't sit so much, you know, get off your butt and, uh, and do something that we sit too much. Interesting. I had a I had a shopmate back when I was in a co-op shop that made the most uncomfortable chairs, but he could point to every angle as coming out of some book of ergonomics. And I would always point, well, yes, that angle is seven degrees and the, the tilt back is three degrees. This chair just hurts to sit in. <laughs> and it's, it's an interesting push and pull uh, is, I mean, is sitting ergonomically all albeit uncomfortable, a better option than sitting comfortably as I'm seated completely relaxed and tilt back in my my office chair that has a 12 different adjustments in it. Yeah, I mean doctors would have a answer for us, but I don't I like to slouch in a chair. I like to tip back in a chair. Yeah, I I I love to do all those things. I love to be comfortable because I'm not sit, I mean I'm not sitting a lot. I sit a little in the morning. I'm sitting now, which is weird, and I sit and I sit a little at night. But sitting is a is a treat, <laughs> uh, so I'm going to do it how I want to do it. If I were keyboarding all day, like when I was an editor, yeah. you know, we had those Aeron chairs, which with you know trying to turn you into a robot for sitting. Um, but uh, I, I can sit very comfortably in a ladder back or a mm -hmm. Welsh stick chair and type two. Uh, it's just learning to learning to sit and move around. Um, but yeah, there aren't magic angles, but there are some good ones. I, I, and I can say that. So let's, uh, let's delve deep into some serious politics here, Chris. We're going to, we're going to, oh man, we're going to jump into the third rail of woodworking. Okay. Hand tool woodworking. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you make a line of, of hand tools and, um, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, but, uh, just talk about, uh, working with hand tools because um, I am a, I am not a Luddite. My favorite tool happens to be my DeWalt angle grinder with a uh, big ass carbide disc on it. Um, mm -hmm. I use my hand tools mainly as finishing tools. Um, my political line has been for many years that the, I believe it was a shaker woman that first developed the table saw and she did it for a reason. Chris, you also used to have quite a collection of real big tools. Oh, I still do have. I do. I have decent machines. I mean, I'm. I'm a. I have to make a living at this. Yeah. I mean, I, my the real quick history is when we were building our houses on our farm, we didn't have electricity, and so we did everything by hand. And I learned to use a crosscut saw. I learned to use a brace and bit. 
you know, we, we did it all by hand and I hated it. You know, all I wanted for life was a skill saw uh, for, my, for Christmas was a skill saw. Um, the reason I write about hand tools is uh, I, I think that there's just not enough written about them, you know, about how to use them and how to use them properly. I think the best woodworkers I know use both. Uh, hand tools and power tools, um, whether that's Frank Klaus or Toshio Odate or people we might associate just with handwork. Um, it's uh, to be a, to, to be on one extreme or the other, all power or all all hand tool. That's the, for me, that seems like fundamentalism. And uh, so I'm not interested in it. I mean, I I support it. That's cool because you know, that's fine. But uh, for me, I get a lot more work done if I have a table saw and a jointer for doing the rough work. And and then the rest of it is as I go. I mean, chairs, you don't have a lot of power tools when you're building stick chairs. There's, you know, you can use an electric drill. <laughs> That'll help you. Um, but there's a lot of times that hand tools make a lot of sense and are better. But, you know, if I'm building uh, a kitchen cabinet, I'm going to get out the narrow crown stapler. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's just being, it's being smart, I think. So I don't really have, I don't really, I get associated with handwork a lot because I was on Roy Underhill's show a bunch of times and I write a lot about handwork, but that's because, you know, there have been 10 billion router books out there and there's only one book on molding planes. <laughs> you know, that's, that's why I write about handwork. Actually, one of my funniest stories about hand tool woodworking involved Roy Underhill. Because Roy, mm -hmm. I don't live that far from Pittsburgh where Roy Underhill's little school is. And I I was a part of a big co-op shop outside of Chapel Hill for many years. And some of the guys that worked and taught at Roy's used to come in and use our big machines. And I never, uh, never, I could never stop laughing every time they were in. I mean, they would use our most biggest, they'd use our wide belt sander. I would just laugh hysterically. It was like, are you guys frauds or are you just doing really the sensible thing here? Yeah, I'd say a lot of them were probably prepping uh, wood for a, a, you know, a class or something. <laughs> and so if you have to do like if I have to do 18 chair kits uh, for a class at Mark Adams, you can you can bet that I'm going to use kill as many electrons as I can because uh, I don't want to be adding out 18 chair seats in oak. <laughs> three months later. <laughs> yeah, three months later. Um, I have six done. So, uh, so yeah, I've not really, I, I don't have a real political viewpoint on it. I mean, I think CNC is cool. I think CNC is cool as heck. And I think people who, uh, you know, make uh, canoes that are just scooped out with, uh, with flint is cool. Uh, it's, it's the people who make stuff that are cool. The people who don't make stuff aren't cool. And that's my bright line in the sand. I, I actually love that response. I think, uh, and that might be a good place to wrap it up unless you have another question, Rob. I think people that, people that make stuff are cool. People that don't make stuff need to learn how to make stuff. I won't say they aren't cool. I'm saying I hold the hope out for them that they will learn to make stuff and be cool too. Chris, thank you so much for being on Why Make. We really enjoyed having you. Great. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. And as we always end it with Why Make. Why Make. Why Make. You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon. 
patreon.com forward slash why make podcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at why make pod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening.